This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listen up. One out of four batteries are going to fail this winter. We know this. So get yours tested for free during Superstar Battery Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. If it does need to be replaced, O'Reilly has the Superstar Battery for you. O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. It was just all about me, me, me. And so that's where I think I went wrong. I had no foundation for anything that was more important than what I did for a living. What did Giants GM Brian Sabian tell you when you signed that contract? (laughs) He said, you might as well tattoo that expletive number on your forehead, meaning the 126 million. (laughs) Hey now, what's cracking y'all? I am so glad you found your way to the original side hustle, the Jim Rome podcast, and we've got another great ep for you right here. Now, you know, I do not play favorites, right? Except this guy was one of my favorite athletes to talk to when he played the game. So I'm really anxious to get caught up with him to see how life is treating him after the game. First, a quick perusal of his resume. He was a Cy Young Award winner, a world champion. He is an accomplished musician. He is now the author of a new book entitled Curveball, How I Discovered True Fulfillment After Chasing Fortune and Fame. By now, you probably know I am talking about Barry Zito. And I can't wait to get to this one, so let's get it going. Ep 98 of the Jim Rome Podcast starts right now. Barry, listen, anytime you and I can get a chance to chop it up and get caught up, that's a really, really good thing. I really appreciate you doing this. Bring me up to date, man. How you living? How are things? Yeah, man, I'm I'm living good, Jim. I'm actually on a little uh, L.A. trip right now, so hanging out in the backyard of the house my parents lived in for many years, and my sister ended up buying, so I got all the good vibes around me right now, all the nostalgia. I like that. And if you're in the Valley, we're talking 818, 818 for life, which I love. In, in <laughs> fact, Barry, never Believe forget. It. Never forget, man. You actually, you made a run through Pierce College. I grew up in Calabasas, so I like it. This is, the be- this is a great way to have the conversation. Now, you've written a book, and it's called Curveball, How I Discovered True Fulfillment After Chasing Fortune and Fame. I said this very thing, Barry, to our podcast guest last week, Tillman Fertitta. He's the billionaire owner of the Rockets, and I said different folks have different reasons for writing a book. Some want to build a brand. Maybe somebody wants to get something off their chest. Some do it for vanity. Some do it for a paycheck. I'm not sure any of this would apply to you at all Barry so why was this a project that you wanted to take on that's a great question man um you know for me I you know I've always had this sense of having a heavy conscience you know if I wasn't doing something right in life or you know maybe I lied to somebody or, or treated someone wrong and so my conscience has just been a little heavy uh with just you know, some things that went on in my career that I wasn't always upfront about, uh, just because as pro athletes, as you know, you can't always tell the truth. You kind of pull the little nuclear loose, you know, got to help the team and God willing, you know, go out there and, you know, same old, same old. So for me, this is really just the full transparent story of what's really happening inside the head of a, a pro athlete who just had a lot of issues with, with pressure and making lots of money. 
Listen, that's that's a really deep and profound response already. But then the book reads like that, and it's exactly what I would expect. The book is deep, it's thoughtful, it's bold. So what was it like to put these deeply personal thoughts and stories to paper and then essentially bury your soul in such a manner for the world to see? It was a cathartic experience. I mean, really, you know, and, and, it, and it's interesting because, you know, I've lost both my parents. Now my mom in 08, my father in 13, and, you know, growing up as a kid that kind of, you know, my sisters were 10 years older plus. So growing up kind of as an only child, uh, you know, by parents that made a point to, you know, incredible, lots of love and support, but, you know, almost to a, to a fault where, you know, Barry, you're so special, you're, you're different than the rest of them. You know, you're just going to be so great one day. And, you know, all these things, man, that, that was, you know, that was not something that I felt like benefited me in the long term because I ended up having this kind of deeply rooted ego that was growing and growing and started to be fueled by this adoration that came as a major league player. And so, you know, for me, it was a catharsis to say what I really thought about everything. And, and since my parents were gone, I mean, you know, bless their souls, nobody could second guess me. And, and there was a real, a real magical thing with that. That's really interesting. You know, I would imagine when you're young and you're coming up and you're constantly told you are special, you are better than everybody else. If you keep hearing that, you start to believe it. And especially so, Barry, if it starts to play out in the way of performance, the way it did early in your career. But let me ask you about your dad. Your father, Joe, had a music background. He was really accomplished. He was really successful. Was he a baseball guy? Did he put you in baseball? He was not a baseball guy. He was a he was a musician, like you said, and he left New York and became a talent manager. And these are things that I actually only ever realized when I wrote this book. But I came along when we moved from Vegas to San Diego. I was six. And when, when I got to San Diego, I started, you know, playing baseball. And I liked it. Like most kids, you know, we, we play baseball. We like it. And so my father, not having the entertainment industry in San Diego, then went into almost treating me, his son, you know, and, and like a managerial client. And I mean, he certainly wanted the best for me and wanted me to have a great life and, and a head start financially like any dad would for their kids. Um, but he always said, you know, I know the, the ingredients of success and the signs of failure, even if it's in sports, which I know nothing about. So that was kind of my day-to-day trainer slash manager really until, you know, my mid to late 20s when I was in the big leagues. It's fascinating. So they're hammering home this point, and they're coming from a place of love, right? They want you to do well. They care about you, but you're special, you're different. And then you get to the major leagues, Barry, and you win the Cy Young Award in just your second full season. So all these things that you've been taught are coming to fruition. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's an amazing accomplishment. At that time, was winning that Cy Young when you did – was that the best thing ever, or maybe was that kind of a really dangerous thing? Yeah, it's great. I mean, you know, you illuminate really the sides of it that, that I lived, which is, you know, I, and, and a lot of it had to do with a spiritual, you know, kind of upbringing for me. It was in kind of a, a new age teaching that didn't really teach me that anything was more important than my own self-control or my willpower or the way I could use my mind to create reality. And, and these things are pretty popular these days, right? So, uh, you know, it's kind of like I can control everything if I can think, you know, properly about it. And so for me, getting to the major leagues and experiencing crazy success early, I was taking all the credit for all of it. And so, uh, hey, that was fine when it was going good. But eventually that wasn't fine anymore because things went bad and I started to blame myself. Um, but the Cy Young ended up being a, a very scary thing because now it was like, wow, I just did all this, and now how do I do it again? 
Right. So I would imagine it gets kind of heavy at that point, right? Like instead of like breeding additional confidence, probably it creates some anxiety. Absolutely. Cause there was not an ounce of gratitude of like, wow, how did this happen? You know, this was kind of like, uh, yeah, this is all the plan. You know, dad was talking about 300 wins and multiple Cy Young. So here we are, we're, we're right on course, you know, and I kind of treated it more like I deserve every ounce of this, even to the point where a woman came up to me the year after the Cy Young, uh, I was in a hotel in, uh, in Philly on a road trip. And she said, you must be so grateful for that curveball, Barry. Wow. You've just been so blessed. And I literally got mad at her and said, what are you talking about? I've been working my whole life for this. You don't know that I earned this. I mean, that was a little sign maybe of my ego issue. <laughs> That's something else, Barry. I mean, of course, now, I mean, you were young. I don't know. I mean, who who's ready for that sort of thing? Who's ready for that kind of success and that adoration and that kind of money? In fact, you said something interesting, kind of off topic, but like Buster Posey, right? Buster Posey was another one of those guys. I could argue you were one of the chosen ones. And, and believe me, you earned it. You, like, you had certain gifts, but you busted your ass to get where you were then. Buster Posey was another guy who you might argue was one of the chosen ones, but he seemed to take everything in stride. Like, when you look at him, how did he do that? How did he handle that? No, you know, it's funny. Buster is one of the guys that I just really admire because he was a guy that he seemed like he had a foundation for what was really important. What are the real priorities in life? You know, and he had that going into his career, and I think that he just took everything else in stride. Like, hey, this is great. They're cheering my name. But, but I don't really care that much. Whereas me, if someone was cheering my name, I'd be like, all right, who needs an autograph? Come on, get in line. Come on, let me go kiss some babies. You know, and, and it was just all about me, me, me. And so that's where I think I went wrong. I had no foundation for anything that was more important than what I did for a living. And then it starts to spin, right? So now you're 24 and you sign that monstrous contract with the Giants, $126 million, which was the most money given to a pitcher ever at that point. What did Giants GM Brian Sabian tell you when you signed that contract? <laughs> yeah, his prophecy, which I didn't know was a prophecy, but he said you might as well tattoo that expletive number on your forehead, meaning the $126 million. <laughs> because it was always going to be there. And was it like when you went to the bump every fifth day, did you feel like you were dragging that contract out there with you? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, at that point, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I kind of was slowly declining in Oakland. My numbers were still good, but certainly not dominant like they were early in my career. And so what ended up happening is I got that big contract. And, of course, I'd been down in Hollywood trying to, you know, go win the MVP of the club, you know, to kind of, overcompensate because I wasn't getting it done on the field. So when that contract came in San Fran, I mean, I felt like I had to throw a complete game shutout every day just to, just to validate my position. You know, I, I didn't know what to do. Barry, that was such an amazing line. What you just said, you were trying to win the MVP at the club because things were not going as well on the field. How about like the culture of the two, for instance, Oakland, like when you first came up, o Oakland's different. And I mean that in a really good way, right? They just, the way they do their business, the way they handle themselves, it's a really different kind of culture and you fit in so well there. What about San Francisco? That's a different culture than, than Oakland was. How was that fit for you when you got there? Yeah, the Oakland culture, I mean, there's something magical about what they do there. Um, I feel like Billy and, you know, all the way down figured out just to let these guys be who they are, don't intervene. You know, Bob Melvin's a huge part of that now. But, you know, that, that was just part of it. You know, we were kind of under the radar in the Bay Area. You know, Barry Bonds and the Giants always got all the media. And so when I went across to the, you know, to the San Francisco team, 
I, I changed personally. I was like, I can't be some kind of out there, just yoga surfer kid. Like I got to straighten up. I got to, you know, put on a suit. I got to be official now. And nobody ever told me that I had to do that. I just was afraid that I wouldn't fit in just kind of as I was. And so a lot of that came from my own, my own inner stuff. You know, so when you mentioned, if you can finish the thought, that when things were not going the way you would hope necessarily on the field, you started to kind of act out or maybe not act out but compensate off the field. Like, how so? How did that play out in the West Hollywood days? You know, for me, I mean, I grew up like every other person, you know, like seeing the National Enquirer, you know, seeing Us Weekly and People Magazine and, and wanting to be on the cover or wanting to, you know, date a famous girl or, you know, do these things. And so when I moved to L.A. when I was 20 to go to Pierce Junior College and, you know, right here in Woodland Hills, I, you know, I slowly became a part of this culture. And, and then I bought this, you know, big mansion up in the West Hollywood Hills. And then, you know, I was hanging out on Sunset and hanging out in the club with some people I'd seen on TV and, you know, really just like anyone, you, you'd want to do that. That's exciting. But slowly my identity started to become, you know, so wrapped in how important do people think I am? How, you know, how famous or close to fame can I get to like validate this, basically this huge hole in myself that couldn't be filled, you know, by any of it. So it was really a, a losing battle, but it didn't stop me. Barry, for the record, as fascinated as I might be by the West Hollywood lifestyle and the fact that you might have been with some starlets or been the MVP at the club, I'm still way more uh, fascinated by your Woodland Hills lifestyle and the 818 life, but that that's just me for the record. Now, when you, like, you're, you're brought up and you're, you're like, success, success, and your, your dad's hammering that into you, and you live in, you, you have the life that we all want or we all think we want, the mansion, the cars, the women, the adoration, all the things that are supposed to make you feel so good you had yeah. those things. Did they make you feel good? Dude, that's totally it, man. And, you know, no, yes, they, of course. They, they made me feel good to the extent that when you get a new pair of shoes, when you get that new cool phone you always wanted, when, you know, when you get that new flat screen you've been saving up for so you can just watch movies on an awesome sound system. You know, okay, great. Like, that was a sweet two weeks. And then you're back to baseline. And then it's like, okay, what's the next new thing I can get? And so eventually I was like, dude, I've literally tried every, like every box is checked or almost every box that I want to check and I'm still empty inside. There's still, so what, what's going on? Is there one thing I haven't found, you know? And, and that's kind of the theme of the book, man, is like, there wasn't, there wasn't really too much gold in that pot of the rainbow. I mean, there was enough, but you know, it was fun for a minute, but. It, there, there's not a lasting fulfillment, that's for sure. God, that's the truth, isn't it? I mean, it, it's true. You fire open that iPhone box, man, that feels good. Uh, the dopamine's going off in your brain for for an hour, you know, for a little while, but then, quote, you're back to your baseline. So then I would imagine you're focusing on these things that you could buy, and you're focusing on the life as opposed to the thing that enabled you to buy the things and gave you the life, right? The craft and the work that you had done. And then Barry, in 2010, and you lay this out in the book, Bruce Bochy comes to you and says he's going to leave you off the postseason roster. As competitive as you were and as much as you cared, what was it like to hear that from him, and how hard did that hit? Yeah, that was that was the beginning of the end. That was when that was when I started to unravel really completely to nothing. And you know, I'd, I'd had four bad years with the Giants at that point. You know, well into the lost column at that point, and you know, the other four starters on the team were pitching better, so. You know, Bochy said, hey, you know, you can go home, pack it up, go back to L.A. You know, we'll see you next spring. Just uh, 
you know, a new fresh start. And I was like, no, man, I'm going to stay with my boys. Like, let me just throw bullpens or something. And if someone goes down, maybe I can pitch. So I had to fight to even do that. And then I ended up staying in the dugout, you know, watching them go to the playoffs and, of course, win the World Series, which I wanted to win my whole life. And, you know, and, and sadly rooting against them, you know, sadly my ego was in full control. And, and really my ego was completely panicked that I wasn't even needed on the team. So, I mean, I guess if they would lose without me, at least that would prove that maybe, you know, maybe they would have won if I did pitch. And it, it was just a real dark time, man. Barry, people in your position do not say things like that. They might think it, but they don't say it. And you just said that right here. I know you've said this in the book, but that's really heavy and you were a team guy. Now, you're being honest about how your ego kind of got the better of you and got away from you, but were you really rooting against your guys not to win the World Series or moreover to lose the World Series? Yeah, it, it, was, it was this underlying kind of darkness that was just operating under the surface. It wasn't like I'm going to the yard every day going, all right, Philly, come on, boys, let's get it going. You know, right. I'm sitting there in the clubhouse with my guys but feeling so – ashamed and so i mean just hating myself but just in this in this darkness you know where i just tried to be invisible in the clubhouse and no i mean it's not like matt kane's on the mound and i'm hoping he gives up like three bombs i'm just sitting here going what what can possibly make me feel worthy or validate you know my baseball talent or career the only thing that could is if we didn't get to the world series and win it because zito wasn't pitching i get that barry I do. I understand that. So you're not in a good place mentally and emotionally. You badly went out of that situation. And then you call your father right around that time. And you told him, well, what did you tell him? And how'd that conversation go? Yeah, I mean, you know, Boats told me I wasn't going to be on the roster. I got home and I said, all right, got to call my dad. You know, I'm thinking about, I mean, really, I just wanted nothing to do with the game. I was about to walk away from the contract the last three years and just in such shame. I mean, when, when all of us feel shameful and, you know, depressed, I mean, we just, we just make irrational decisions. And so I said, dad, I want to quit baseball. And I, before I do, I just want to know if you, you would still love me if I quit. Cause I, you know, I kind of just thought that he only loved me or approved of me when I was pitching well, which is kind of goes back to the childhood thing, you know? Are you craving some protein after a good workout? Do not make a shake this time. Don't eat a bar. Instead, grab a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper. Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty. It's tender. It's made from real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. And it goes wherever you go. To the game, to the gym, to the beach, anywhere. So look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, be sure to ask for it by name because no other jerky can pairs or trapper what's your beef barry like for instance you mentioned at the top of the interview the top of this conversation that your parents were no longer here and that was sad of course but there was nobody to second guess you like how strong a hold did he have on you in terms of what his thoughts and opinions meant to you how important was that to you i mean it was everything you know his he he you know he did his best he did his absolute best and i'm not faulting any of that but he you know he what i ended up interpreting from being raised was that i actually can't trust myself i can't trust my intuition or my gut instinct on how to live life because i have you know this brilliant wise man over here telling me the right way to do it and so i just started deferring to him for all my decisions and I didn't actually even know what I thought anymore. And and that was why I had to ask him this, like, Hey, if, if I don't play this, are we still good? 
like, you know, because our relationship was always just based around baseball. There was really nothing outside of baseball that, that felt super real to me. So what did he say when you asked him that question? He said, uh, well, Barry, that wouldn't be a great business decision, but of course I would still love you. And so that wasn't what I was hoping to hear, <laughs> obviously. Um, and, you know, I never got to really ask him, unfortunately, about that because literally a, a week after that phone call, he had a stroke and went to the hospital and was unconscious for almost three months and, you know, um, lived another year and a half. But, um, you know, so we never really got to revisit that. That's really hard. That is really, really hard. So before we talk about how you turn this whole thing around, was that rock bottom or was there still even further challenges beyond that? Yeah, rock bottom is a special thing, man. I think, I mean, I just embrace any any of it now because that that was the turning point i mean i came home from la brian wilson who was my best friend for you know a good year and a half two years you know now lived in la he was you know he was the most famous guy in baseball and you know he had come down and lived in my home the year before um or two years before rather and now you know he was being brian wilson fear the beard and and everyone was hanging out with brian and no fault to him i mean he was just rocking it um you know, but for me, it was dark, man. No one came around. And so I, I ended up going to a 12-step group for codependency, meaning, you know, I was obsessed with other people's opinions, just like my father's. I was obsessed with his opinion my whole life. So I, I transferred that on to everybody else. And that kind of became my, you know, my disease, I guess, as, as they say. And uh, that cracked me open because at that point I, I could finally say that I can't do this alone anymore. I mean, there, there's so much in that. So you go through that 12 step and you start to learn this about yourself and some other things. Did you not learn things there that ran totally counter to the way you were raised and the lessons you learned in your home? Oh yeah, man. I, I you know, this is a big thing, right? The, the positive thinking, the positive movement, you know, all these things and that, and that there's a lot of greatness to that and, and great things in that. But for me, you know, I was raised with, you know, all this positive stuff. We don't talk about bad stuff. We don't want to create that in our lives. So let's not talk about it. Meanwhile, this thing is growing inside of me that I can't even look at or face, right? Because actually everything is positive and fine. I just need to see this through a positive lens. Well, the reality was, no, there's a lot of darkness in me that I wasn't acknowledging. And so when I finally cracked open, you know, and, and step two in the coda was, you know, willing to admit there's a power greater than myself that can restore me my sanity. I was like, yes, please. Right. <laughs> I'll be the first in line for that one. Uh, I need something to defer to because I can't defer to my own, you know, intellect or willpower anymore. It's breaking me. So in other words, you're brought up to believe, hey, listen, if you try hard enough and you care enough and you work hard enough, you can will anything your way. And then you come to find out that, you know what, maybe not only do I not have all this control, that I can't, that I can control anything. Maybe I can't really control anything at all. <laughs> yeah, probably on too far on the other side, but you know, yeah. And that was it. And, and I needed structure. I needed a way to live a way to think. Cause my own processing of life was, it was broken. Like I literally felt like I had like a malfunction in the system, you know, the hard drive was broke or something. And so you know, seven, eight months later, I, I found this relationship with God, as they say. I mean, I've I, I found this higher power God to live for. And now it's not about my glory. It's about his. And that's a completely different platform and foundation. It, it was always about boosting myself. And now it's like, I don't even know what's happening. Just get me out of the conversation and let's give it to God. Huh. So you find that and then you find yourself and then you do the work 
and you make it back. And then in 2012, you pitch in an NLCS elimination game in St. Louis. You shut out the cards for seven and two-thirds innings. You send that series back to San Francisco. The Giants would win it. Then you win game one of the World Series, and you beat Justin Verlander. I mean, given everything that you had been through— and given all the hard work that you put in, I mean, all of it, that was your season of redemption. What did redemption feel like? That's right. That's right. It was redemption felt like nothing I ever thought it would be. Uh, you know, I, I used to have dreams about winning more Cy Youngs or, you know, so I could rub it in all the faces of the media writers that were ripping me in half when I was in San Francisco. And it's funny, all I ever wanted was for those fans to just say, you're worth the money. And so I never got that with that mindset, with that death grip on getting redemption. And so finally in 2012, I went into these playoff games literally so detached from the idea of bring it, bringing it home for the Giants. It was just like, I just want to do my best. And literally, if that's 10 Ernie's in the first inning, I'm fine with that. I just don't want to self-sabotage anymore because I'm so desperate to like get approval you know, and wins. And, uh, and magically, when I gave up that death grip, you know, we won the game. We won the World Series. We, the redemption was pouring over me, and I literally, ironically, didn't even want it. And, and that was the magical thing about it. So, I mean, there's always that baseball phrase, Barry, like, try easier. That's a really hard thing to do, by the way, to try easier. Was it a matter of trying easier, or was it a matter of kind of learning to let go altogether? Yeah, I mean, listen, at the end of the day, like, what do I as a pitcher really have control over? I just, like the best delivery with the best timing and then let that ball come off my fingers the best it can. And then after that, dude, like the lights go out in the stadium and I have no idea what happened 60 feet away. That's how I approached that game in St. Louis. I literally had no control 60 feet away. I, I had no idea what was happening. And that was another human being with their own set of willpower. So who was I to ever think I could control that? And when I gave that up completely, I just said, man, I just want this ball to feel really like snappy and crispy off my fingertips. I want to I want to feel that seam when I throw that curveball and hear that little that little magic sound. And, and dude, if that happens, I'm good. <laughs> right. And then it seems like, I mean, even from day one, no matter where you were, no even if there wasn't gratitude or appreciation or understanding, you were always searching. You were always seeking truth, peace. Have you found those things? I did. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like, you know, people are like, I found it. And it's, I mean, I just, I was a seeker from day one. I mean, I, w I was raised to question and seek. And so, I mean, through the years, man, in Oakland and San Francisco, I must've tried 10 different, you know, spiritualities and practices and meditations and all these things. And then when I found the one that worked, I just, I mean, it's been 10 years, man. I haven't looked back. I haven't even had a thought that, that this is not it. And it's just crazy, you know, not in an arrogant way by any means, but I'm like, this is real, man. This is crazy. I, I feel more peace and contentment in my life than I've ever felt, you know, and, and I'm happier on a daily basis. And I think there's something to be said for that. I think there's, I want to say a lot of people, I mean, who listening right now isn't thinking about something similar to that for whatever it is we're looking for. I mean, don't we all want peace and truth and tranquility? So did you find it or did it find you? Yeah, no, that's a great that's a great question, man. I think I think for me, I felt like when I was running out there to find it, I could never get my hands on it. And when I finally sat back and just listened and really kind of worked it out myself slowly and just tried to have perspective, I realized that it 
was on a hunt for me, you know, trying to find me for years. And I just kept saying, nope, nope, uh-uh, nope, I can do it. I can do it alone. Nope, I don't need that. Nope, I'm good. <laughs> and then finally when I said, man, I need something, then finally it just rushed over me and never been the same, man. So, Barry, you're in Nashville. What's it like? How'd you end up in Nashville? And what's it like to live in Nashville? Man, Nashville's incredible. I uh, I took a year off after the seven-year contract with the Giants and then ended up going and pitching in AAA uh, Nashville and just falling back in love with baseball again and uh, and ended up just retiring there and writing songs. And now I got I got two beautiful kids and a wonderful wife, and I get to pursue music every day. And, man, I'm just... I'm just buzzing, man. It's amazing. I was going to put that out there next. So you took up music during your playing career. You famously played in studio for my radio program, which was awesome. It was awesome. Oh, yes. How could we forget? We'll never forget that. But I mean, I mean that sincerely, Barry. That was ne- I, I was always odd that you did that because you were just learning. You were just learning, and you were not afraid, and you went out there, and you put it out there. Then you launched your career, and again, your parents were in the similar industry. What's that been like, and where's your musical career right now? How are things going? Yeah, you know, it's been really interesting to kind of see, you know, again, this isn't about me. It's like, okay, what's God doing over here? You know, like writing songs two and a half years on Music Row and, you know, had some had some small successes, got some cuts on some records and, and you know, put out a little EP myself and then um, took the time to write the book, which was two years, and now going full blast into music production, which really has been my, my long-term goal to be a producer-writer. So, um, you know, I'm just in an educational phase and can't wait to make some more music and, and really just have, you know, full control over what's happening musically and, um, and just really just see what's next, you know, trying to have a loose grip on my, on my dreams, man. And, and just let the wheel kind of go where it's going, you know? Yep. Yep. Listen, really quick before you go, a couple of things. You mentioned Brian Wilson, like when he was just killing it, he was doing his thing. And you, you admitted that at that time you were kind of struggling with ego yourself. Did you and he have a falling out at that point? And did that ever reconcile itself? We did. We did have a falling out, and it was no no reason for, you know, nothing on Brian's end. I mean, Brian's an amazing human being and an inspirational person, and uh, knowing Brian at the at the intimate levels was always something that I just felt so honored to do, you know. Um, but that was me. I mean, I couldn't handle that he was so famous and so successful, and yet my career was plummeting and, you know, and just tanking. And, uh, and so really I just pushed him away out of my own insecurity and, uh, it, it was kind of like a wound in my side, you know, every time I would hear his name or see how, you know, he's on these TV shows and all these kind of things that I wanted to do just to glorify my own, my own ego, you know? So did you ever fix that? Did you ever reconcile that with him? You know, these things take time. Relationships are tricky, right? With life. So, you know, um, yeah, I mean, you know, Brian knows and, and he was actually a very, very much a, a bigger man, which was no surprise to me. And I, I, I gave him a little heads up that I was writing this book and then I talk about him a little bit and he was very supportive and um, just, you know, very forgiving of, of kind of the mess that I was in in myself and uh just like I said, just an incredible guy. I appreciate you sharing that. You know, really quickly, when you go back to like the shiny things, I remember when I went to UC Santa Barbara and we had a poli sci professor, Barry, back in the day. And can understand this was like the 80s. And this guy was a very liberal guy. And I remember him looking at the whole class and saying, let me tell you all something. A new bike is not going to change your life. And I remember thinking like as a 19-year-old kid, let me tell you something, prof, it would change my life. And you know what would really change my life? A new car. That'd be like 100 times better. Come to find out that guy knew exactly what he was talking about. But point of the story, speaking of bikes in UC Santa Barbara, I was talking to one of your former college teammates 
on this same podcast a few weeks back, Michael Young, he said that you oh, wow. once got your bike ripped in IV. And like we all, I've always told this story, Barry, about in Isla Vista, if you get your bike stolen, it's fine. You go rip somebody else's bike. And Michael Young just goes into this story about Barry was such a great dude that he got his bike stolen. He found the bike. He waited in the bushes for hours to confront this person and to let him know, hey, by the way, you stole my bike. The story is too good to be true. Is that the way that went? Oh, man, that's incredible. I mean, Mike Young is, is, a, is a man of, of truth, so I would have to say that is. Um, unfortunately, due to um, some other things happening in Santa Barbara, I don't remember that story. Um, but I do remember Mike, and I do remember the bikes being a thing. And uh, I actually have a vague memory of hiding out in the bushes, uh, just not the details. Barry, having gone to Santa Barbara, I know exactly why you may or may not remember that story. And <laughs> I, I can speak to that as well. You know, I we, we gauchos, we, we got to sit together. You know, you were at Pierce, you were at USC, you went to UCSB. Do you, do you ever get back to Santa Barbara? Is there any kind of connection? You were only there one year, but he did make a point of saying that even before you got on campus— you were far and away their best pitcher already. Do you have any kind of connection to the program or to the town at all? You know, I, I want more of a connection. I, I am in touch with their coach um, over there, and, and Bronson obviously is not there anymore, and Bronson and I got along. I mean, I transferred out of Santa Barbara in the middle of the night. I mean, it was not pretty. Like Again, my father was making these moves. So after a year and a half, he goes, we need to get down to Pierce College. So they, they, my mom and dad drove up with a cargo van. Like, talk about shady. I don't even think there was any windows in the back. And, like, you know, we packed up my apartment and left. And then he called Santa Barbara from L.A. said, oh, by the way, Barry just transferred. Thanks. Take care. And so they had every right to hold a grudge. And, you know, but when Bronsima invited me back for the alumni game a few years later, I, I showed up in my, you know, my high socks and, was trying to play shortstop and having a great time, and it's been all good ever since. Oh, that's good. I can tell you this. I don't, without knowing for sure, but I, I know the coach, Andrew Checkets. He's extremely well thought of. I, I'm sure if you ever, ever, ever wanted to or worked your way back there, they would be thrilled to see you. Thrilled to see you. I need, yeah, I need to get back there, man. My, I mean, my heart, my heart is in Santa Barbara. I'll tell you, that, that was what shaped me as a man, you know, being there right out of high school. Man, I love that. So, Barry, again, I think the book is so thoughtful. I think it's courageous, and you should be really proud of putting on paper what you did. I know you put two years into it. If people listening right now want to get the book, it seems self-evident, but what's the best way for them to get this book? Um, you know, I guess just kind of whatever books are sold, you know, Amazon and things like that. Um, I'll tell you what was super fun was the audio book. I got to record that myself. So, How did that go? You know, Tell me about that process. It was fun, man. It's fun telling your story in your own voice. You know, my wife listens to these audiobooks, and and I feel like when someone's talking and telling their story, you just feel like you're right there in the room with them. You know, and and I had a really good time doing that. But um, yeah, man, it, it's been really great talking to you, Jim. I, I miss it. Hey, Barry, really quick, you're you're in the studio now, so you're accustomed to this. But people don't really understand how long did it take you to do the book on audio? Oh yeah, man, that was probably twenty hours of recording. Yeah. Um, yeah, 20, 20 hours, maybe more than that. I mean, it's, you know, the book, you know, that book's good. Well, I don't know how many words, thousands, you know, but it was a challenge for sure. I, I definitely didn't know how hard that was. Barry, so great to get caught up. And one last thing I want to mention to you, I don't know if you remember this, but you, you were always so good to me and in my radio shows and TV shows. When I did a TV show for Fox Sports Net before I went back to ESPN, you were on the last show and they rolled out this cake to say goodbye to me and you stayed and you saw the whole thing. And I remember you saying to me, quote, dude, these people love you. 
And I remember I was really moved by that. I thought that was really, really nice. I don't know if you remember that day at all because you were doing so much media and you had so many things going on. But I never forgot that day that you came in studio and you saw that whole thing transpire. Yeah, man, I do, man. And it was evident. And I, and I feel like people do just love you, man. You got this infectious thing where it just kind of translates all the way across. And that was really cool just to run into that little, uh, that little moment with you and, and, uh, and everybody, man. Yeah, you too, Barry. You have you absolutely have that thing, and I, I've always appreciated you. And I was so thrilled to see you take the time to write that book because I knew that'd be another chance for you and I to come together. I really appreciate you and the friendship and the relationship, Barry. And anytime we can talk again, I would love to do so. That sounds great, Jim. Man, always an honor, man. And and uh, and just wish you the best of luck. My sincere thanks to Barry Zito for the time and the conversation. And if you want to get at him about anything you just heard, he is on Twitter. His handle is at Barry Zito Music. So the countdown to episode 100 continues. We have our guest, but I don't want to give that up just yet. I can tell you this, though. Ep 98 is already booked for next week. And you can look forward to hearing from the pirate Mike Leach, head coach at Washington State. So that's going to be great. I'm not going to tell you to look for it because by now there should not be any looking anymore with this podcast. Simply subscribe and you'll get the episodes downloaded directly and automatically to whatever device you're listening to right now. In the meantime, here is a big, fat batch of voicemails for you. I'll see you next week. I'm out. First new message. Dr. Dave. I don't know what Hawk's doing with his back here. I played tennis for over 30 years and never once did I hurt my back. Don't go see the Cairo. That's like seeing a snake oil salesman. Stop annoying us with your pain. Be a man. Message deleted. Next message. Uh, hi, Roman Speaks. Take me to Del Taco. Dip me in the salsa. Dip me in the queso. Watching me drown. Watching me drown. <laughs> Message deleted. Next message. It's Brian calling from America City. Being from America City, I was born on that bandwagon. And I got to tell you, Romy, number one, hearing you and your voice on that Odell Beckham hype video, goosebumps. America's host with America's receiver. Message saved. Next message. David from Rock Hill, driving home from the Browns game last night. Voices messed up from yelling at Freddie, 17 rows deep, to run the ball a little bit more. War to Clay Matthews Sr. making the Hall of Fame, and war to the Indians playing baseball in October. Message saved. Next message. Van Smack! Mike and friends at the Hacker Dome. Three weeks, three wins for the Bills. Got us feeling like. We like it here, 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 you bet your ass. Message saved. Next message. Romy, huge fan. I'm just calling about, um, I forgot what I was going to say. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jim. This is David from Buffalo. Appreciate the vine, man. 
all the talk is about Eli Manning, and is he a Hall of Famer now because his career is effectively over? I mean, you know, for a guy that won two Super Bowls, he did a lot of nothing. I mean, he's kind of like the Andy North of professional football. And, and clones, Andy North is a guy who won two U.S. Opens. If you don't know golf, he did a lot of nothing besides that, and now he works for ESPN. No fucking way is Eli Manning a Hall of Famer. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Jim, Don here. The, the Hawkman wouldn't put me on today. But anyway, I like that new commercial about the Dove hair care for men in case you use your chicks stuff. So I guess that dude Spencer from Salt Lake was using it when he called, shaking in the shower, changing from Jeff to him. Man, that stuff works. Out. Message deleted. Next message. What's up, bro? Bulldog. Edstrom, Steve in the house. We're doing our show live right now. We got something for you real quick, bro. Here it is. Edstrom, Bulldog, Steve. Message deleted. Next message. Rome, I'm here to check you. Like checks and balances in the Constitution. If you don't like somebody, you go, ah! There is no recourse. Except now there's Message deleted. You have no more messages. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.